Hey guys, Jim Cox, Devon Financial Partners, Park Avenue Securities. And I'm here today with an interview with Barbara McVeigh. We had uh, actually uh, come across each other on uh, Facebook and we had liked uh, some posts in common. And when um, we started chatting, I, uh, I checked out her uh, page and I was kind of stunned by a title of a book that she had wrote and I wanted to learn more about her story and what I think is particularly important is this is kind of different from other podcasts that I've done um, less I guess wonky but um, you know it's kind of uh, a look at history and how things have uh, played out but also what it means for today especially giving our uh, current environment that we're all kind of living through and, and some are struggling with. So, uh, Barbara, thanks for taking the time to chat. Thanks so much, Jim. It's an honor and a privilege. I appreciate it. Awesome. So, you had written a book titled uh, Redemption, How Ronald Reagan Nearly Ruined My Life. Um, what's What's the deal? How did you come up with that that book? That's right. Well, it is a memoir, um, but it's tongue-in-cheek because I want to, through a personal story, share how the policies of the hero of the Republican Party have really led us all into a pretty disastrous path. And um, to share, you know, very, very personal family story of mine I think it's so relevant today. Um, I really didn't understand the significance of the start of that project about five years ago until now because you're right, it is, it is a profound statement right now. Um, there's so much for us to awaken to. And um, my own reason to write that story was really just to kind of cleanse myself from, you know, really an anger I had toward my own father for 30 years. Mm. My father took a stand in 1981 union strike. Um, some people have forgotten, but I remember very well. I was 13 years old, and I actually remember laying awake at night waiting for the FBI to come arrest my father for striking against the federal government. He was an air traffic controller. Um, 20, I think it was about 20,000 union members walked out of their job in order to protest against um, Reagan's policies. Um, he had made political campaign promises that he did not deliver on. So the union members, many of them, were believing they were actually taking a stand for the American people, to take a stand for political honesty. That union was given 48 hours to get back to work or be fired. Um, my dad believed in honesty, and so my dad was fired along with, in the end, it was about 13,000 union members, which was really the beginning of the end of unions in, in this country. Many unions um, were... You know, kind of followed suit and were, um, were broken up after that, which if you can look at the track record of the last 25, 30, 30 years, that union bus was really the beginning of the, be uh, the beginning of the disparity, economic disparity in this country. Yeah, I think definitely, uh, definitely the uh, income gap is widened, and I think um, there are plenty of statistics that show people are making on average, about as much as they were back in the, the 80s. So, I mean, there's a lot of economic disparity. Yeah, it was probably 
been, in all fairness, a tough call for any political leader at that time, as it was a federal crime to strike against the government. So Reagan was definitely put in a, <laughs> but it's a hard place, between a hard place and a rock, or whatever that expression is. I mean, he's not an easy place to be, but, um, you know, through the personal story, you know, I, it's a story that I was told at that time, period of time after Carter and the recession and, you know, gas um, gas issues, and if you remember, long lines at gas stations and all that sort of stuff. Um, I came from actually a very strong Reagan-loving family. I mean, my grandfather, everybody respected. He was really a self-made man, didn't spend a day in college, but really lived a very good life and served in World War II and all of this sort of stuff. The anger and blame toward my father was immense because we were pitted in poverty. Um, you know, after those years, it was really hard, hard years for, me, um, for my family. I lost my funds for a college education. I lost my guitar lessons, which is kind of funny because that's actually turned into a project I'm doing right now that I can talk about. But for 30 years, I blamed my father for that pain that we endured. And that was up until five years ago, I started to understand the trickle-down economic policies and how that's really led to really sanctioning greed in this country. And, um, and the economic disparity, too. It has not worked for the people. And, um, and then I began to understand other policies. And little by little, I began to recognize, oh, my goodness, my dad took a huge political stand that we all could be learning from right now. Mm. Because if you don't have honesty, you don't have anything. Yeah. And that is something that's really, really used right now. Yeah, so I, after I had this bit of awakening, I um, had a big change in my own life. I began to look at my own life, which was a bit of a train wreck at the time. Very unhappy marriage. Um, although we were living a life that everyone on the outside would perceive as a good life. We had a big house, living in Marin County, all the trappings. But I realized how horribly uh, unhappy I was. Mm. And I cashed everything in. I'm living on a sofa right now, but I'm doing these passion projects that are just making me feel so wealthy. And I have the trust of amazing people right now who are helping me fulfill some dreams that I lost when I was 13 years old. And it's, it's a gift. I, I could not imagine being really more happy right now than ever, um, despite the things that are happening in our country right now, which is really kind of giving me that understanding that you got to think big, just like my dad did. Maybe even give up something in order to stand for something bigger than yourself, you know? Yeah. So what did your uh, what did your dad end up doing after he was fired from uh, from the uh, air traffic controllers? I mean, it's kind of a niche job, so. You're right. It's a very niche job, and it was a job that my dad was made for. Um, he, he he was in his late forties. He um, really had no other um, trade. Um, being you know labeled a federal criminal, he could not take on another federal job. He uh, tried his hand at business, he got his contractor's license, but really, in the, in the end, you know, we all just kind of had anger toward him. My brother, who actually later became an air traffic controller himself, he just retired from that profession. Um, I mean, it really, it, was, it really created a lot of strife in my family, and my dad really took the brunt of that. You know, he started drinking, which gave us more reason to blame him. Um, he really, it was very inner um, turmoil that he dealt with. My parents did stay together, but it was rough going for, for many years. 
I think my book was a bit of a healing, um, receiving for him because I really showed, I wanted to share with him, you know, dad, oh my God, I respect you for what you did. And although we, you know, have a big house or all these, you know, things that people perceive as being successful, there was something even deeper that I learned that I am so grateful for. And that is being able to lose it all in, in the face of standing for what is right. Mm. You know, and that takes guts. And in the end, I mean, you know, I'm fine. I ended up, you know, putting myself through college. I did it out of anger, but I did it pretty much on my own without a penny of debt. Um, strangely enough, I, I, I uh, ended up working for a lawyer um, who was part of the Carter administration um, during that period of time, mm. <laughs> which really... Now I'm actually looking back at what Carter had tried to stand for, um, and that's been part of my work in the last couple of years is really trying to understand that piece of history that many have forgotten, and that Carter was really trying hard to get us on a new sustainable energy model. You know, he had solar panels on the White House, yeah. 17,000 wind turbines in California. And said, you know, we need confidence. And what was his speech in 1979? I think it was called the Crisis of Confidence. Yeah. And he said it is the moral equivalent of war to be independent of energy. And if you look at the past 35 years of oil wars, oil spills, ocean acidification, global climate change, when we knew about global climate change in the 1970s, you know, we should all be celebrating Carter right now and saying, whoops, we made a mistake, but we learned. And now is the time to make that amazing shift, economic shift, you know, onto sustainable energy and what an opportunity we have right now, you know. Yeah, I think that um, clearly I think that in a lot of ways the, uh, the economy is changing for a lot of different reasons and clearly sustainability is, is one, of those, one of those aspects and it's really accelerated over the past like really two years because of just the price of solar has come down so much in terms of the solar modules that it's become a lot more competitive with, I mean, Trump is trying to save coal, but the reality is that coal is more expensive than solar now. So, um, you know, economically, it's definitely making an impact and from a, from a business standpoint, but you know, the challenge is, I think, the, that a lot of people are facing are really kind of the same crisis of confidence that your, your dad struggled with in terms of, you know, um, a system that's kind of left him behind and then trying to figure out how do you fit into that or how do you make your way through that. So, um, yeah. But what's also interesting, and, you know, it's an opportunity to really reflect on the past, to learn from the past. You know, during Reagan's early administration, I mean, there were massive protests. Um, his own daughter, actually, Patty Davis, took a stand against her father and um, really protested a lot of his policies. And um, we've kind of forgotten about that. And really, I, I think it really emboldened um, Reagan. And it gave him, you know, just that much more of a platform to speak. And, you know, I, I always look to try to look at the positives. You know, I think um, and it's always hard to judge 
and looking back because there was a climate, there was a political climate, there was a lot of things that happened. Yeah, there were a lot of things that Reagan did that were good. So, but you know, let's look at what we can learn from. So today, as there are so many protests going on um, and anger and resentment, I've come away after all these years of having anger and resentment toward my father is that more anger and resentment just gets you more of that same thing. Yeah. So I've been trying to do an opposite approach. I've, you know, I've been lucky enough to have access to a film called A Road Not Taken about President Jimmy Carter. This was made film, and we had a great screening of that, as well as a week-long celebration for Carter's birthday here in Marin County. That birthday was last October, and we had all of our political representatives give him a tribute to say thank you for your vision. You have helped lead the way with your honesty, your generosity, and uh, we hope to make another celebration this October. We're actually trying to spread it out as far and wide as we can. It's just a grassroots celebration of a leader who really tried to show us something when mm -hmm. we weren't quite ready. But I think we're ready now. You know, we're getting closer. Um, also, with the immigration issues that are going on, which I think we're all just mortified by, um, you know, one, looking on the positive, well, we do have a border problem, don't we? I don't think anyone realized how many people were trying to cross the border. Well, instead of protesting, I, I chose a different route. Um, I, I worked with a number of organizations in the country to um, go down to Guatemala myself to go meet the family of a young woman who was uh, shot in the head, Miss um, Claudia Patricia Gomez Gonzalez. She was a 20-year-old indigenous woman from Quetzaltenango in Guatemala. And I have a little, I've been to Guatemala before, and I've met people who I, I am just, have so much respect for. Their spirituality, their kindness, their generosity, but also their plight. And I went down there to meet with the family and then also to spend time with other farmers and other former immigrants in that region to understand their story. And you know what I found? Oh my goodness, I found a place that is just magical. Mm. You know, and it's again about confidence. That area, it was like paradise with um, farm, the table, food. You know, straight from the corn to tortillas on the plate, to people who were incredibly generous, people who, uh, the Mayan indigenous, it was like walking into a Parisian shop with the textiles that they make, hand make. Mm -hmm. You know, um, the spas up in the mountains, the straight from the volcano um, vents. And I thought, you know, if I were, I'm not good at business, I'm good at dreaming, that's for sure. But. If I had the wherewithal, I would say, you know, what an opportunity to invest in people. You know, not gadgets, but people. Mm -hmm. And I would look and I'd say, this is the next, next Tuscany or the next, you know, place for, for Americans to bridge a relationship with people in, in Guatemala. And, you know, and the thing about Guatemala, too, and it also goes back a little bit to Reagan, but even further beyond that is... You know, Guatemala came clean with the president that they had, Rios Montt, in the early 1980s, who was tried and convicted of genocide. Mm. You know, our, our country actually financially supported him. And that's history that most people don't even recognize. So, you know, the Guatemalan people have kind of given up, you know. They've tried working with their own government, but that gets kind of taken over by, the, by us, El Norte. And, you know, the last resort for this next generation was saying, we can't make it here. We can't help our parents who are, 
struggling and have no hope for education or anything, we are just going to make our way to the United States to work honestly, which many do. I know many. I know many in the Guatemalan community of my own county and send money back home, and most of them do it. It's a place of love. It's not a place of, you know, anger or hate. You always have the bad apples. Always do, for sure. But I don't think that's the primary story, you know. And I, if I have the money, which right now I do not, but have the intention of saying, hey, let's, let's make something of this that's good for more people, you know, and for future generations, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you get to see what Costa Rica is doing with sustainable um, energy. Um, I was down there for a month about two years ago. I took my own two kids there for a month, and we walked around, and I always felt safe, really, um, and um, always being careful and cautious. But what they're doing on a sustainable level is amazing. Yeah, I think they're actually, as a country, I think that they have actually already attained, like, 100% renewable energy use. I mean, admittedly, it's a small country, but... I mean, that's quite a feat for anybody to buck the trend. And, and they're creating a model, right? Yeah. They're helping to share. This is this is what is this is what is attainable. Yeah, and you know, certainly in Guatemala, there was a lot of trash. But you know, there's a there's a lot of places there where you could really put in some muscle and meet amazing, beautiful people, be part of another culture, and help you know lift people up and share that you know, for future generations. So what would you what so, would you say is the primary reason that people are leaving Central America to try to, to come to the United States? Yeah. As it's been written up to, um, it's been fifty years of of destitution. I mean probably further more than that. But um, you know, just as I mentioned with Guatemala and, you know, the genocide, I mean, you know, massacres by the army that we funded in Guatemala, that's also very much the same story with El Salvador and Nicaragua. Yeah. And if we look back, we can understand, there's actually a fantastic film that you can watch um, on, on, you know, just Google it, it's called El Norte. Um, it was made in 1983, I actually saw it back in 1983, and it always left this impression, and it was of a brother and a sister, indigenous, Mayan, who tried to come up to the north, they actually did, but it's the, you know, the trauma that they dealt with, and certainly the people there are still dealing with the trauma, I mean, of loved ones disappearing, being killed, you know, they have no trust in their local government, and their police, and their government, you know, and when you say that we kind of helped fund that, I think it's an opportunity for us to say, as the people, right? to go back and say, let's let's see if we can bridge an understanding and help the Guatemalans. The United Fruit Company also, which was an American corporation, also has a very dark record in Guatemala. Um, you know, much of that land that the United Fruit Company worked with was American-owned, so we actually owned much of the land in Guatemala through that corporation. So the people there became wage earners, you know. And they lost a lot. Um, Art Benz, who was the president of Guatemala in 1959-1960, actually tried to do land reform in Guatemala. He was an amazing guy. He was really for the people. Well, what happened was, and this is completely documented, I think Frontline of 60 Minutes did a piece on it and interviewed the CIA of that time. That was an American um, mission to, to remove him, which they did. He actually stepped down because of we were supporting another leader and helping to create strife. So 
we maintained that security with the our American Corporation, the United Fruit Company, and that's completely documented. Oh. So I think it's really an opportunity for us to kind of look back at our foreign policy and, you know, and really ask ourselves right now, I mean, God, what an opportunity we have to say, we have learned. We've learned what is right and what isn't. And when you create, you know, this, this strife, it doesn't help us in the end, you know? I mean, however you want to look at the illegal immigration or refugees, I view them as refugees, that we just have not acknowledged. And I think that's an opportunity to create something really, really beautiful and great for people. Yeah, well, not... Go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, yeah, and not, you know, you're always going to have the bad apples, but I will tell you, I also met amazing beautiful families, extended families, um, mothers who haven't seen their children for 17 years, um, mothers who haven't um, seen their Guatemalan children since they were little because they came here to work with house cleaners for $10, $12 an hour, you know, have squeezed by for the last 17 years to send money back home so their family can eat and, you know, have a future. Um, you know, these are typical stories that I come across all the time. Um, you know, I'm fortunate enough to be connected to the Guatemalan community in my own county, which is north of San Francisco, and I view some of them as my very good friends. Always completely generous, you know, and, and sensitive to others' needs more so than their own. And that's much, very much part of that mountainous Guatemalan spirit. You know, it's really about sharing. Mm-hmm. It's not about it's not about taking. It's about giving, um, and that's very strong. And, you know, I certainly got to, to experience that um, on so many levels where actually I felt guilty coming home. It's like, gosh, I wish I could do more for the people. And maybe that's part of, you know, my work right now is, is, is doing that. You know, back to, to Reagan and um, in my, in my when, 13, when I was 13 years old, um, how it's all kind of coming full circle for me now is that um, when I was 13, as I mentioned, I'd lost my dream to be to go to college. I really wanted to study oceanography. Um, it was like this passion I had when I was 13. I loved the ocean, and um, I loved playing the guitar, and both of those kind of went out the window when, you know, we were losing the house, my parents were struggling. It was just chaos for many years. I write this in my book, and I did some horrible things as a teenager just because I've had so much anger and resentment. And, um, you know, now um, I'm actually, well, about five years ago when all of these things started coming together to me, for me, um, I, I had this opportunity to write a grant and make a film. And it was a film it was a, about the ocean, and I had never made a film before. But I had so much passion in me understanding what's happening in our ocean with plastic pollution and ocean acidification and all of this that um, I, you know, this is where passion overrides intelligence. <laughs> I don't think. Oh. <laughs> you just don't think what you don't know. You just go for it. And I ended up making a film called Racing with Copacods um, that was funded by Schmidt Family Foundation and actually ended up featuring our world's greatest oceanographer, Dr. Sylvia Earle. She heard about the project and she supported the project. It was just a 20-minute film that you can watch online now, and that film actually traveled to Tasmania, across the country, for Wild and Scenic Film Festival. And it was just this satisfaction for me of, well, I didn't become an oceanographer like I wanted to, but I made a film about the world's greatest oceanographer. And that was enough for me, you know? Hmm. And um, my other aspect 
that, um, you know, and I, I did this with hardly any money, I'm telling you. I, it was a little bit of money here and there to pay other people. I did not make a dime on it, but it was really about a message and it's something that goes much deeper than money could ever take you. But the other film, um, after I made that one, I was blessed to um, have the introduction to Jose Neto, who was a guitarist, Brazilian guitarist. Um, he was partly in Marin County and then also in his um, home country, Brazil. And as I got to know him, I began to realize what a gem he was. And most people don't know who he is. Uh, he was with Harry Belafonte for 30 years. He toured with Steve Winwood. In fact, they just had a concert this past weekend. Um, it was this past weekend at Hyde Park with 65,000 people. Um, Steve Winwood, Eric Clapton, and Carlos Santana. Anyway, long story short, we're just about finished making a film about his life. And he was an illegal immigrant back in 1979 in New York mm. with a dream to play the guitar. <laughs> he auditioned for Harry Colafonte and became his guitarist. And, you know, it's a message about diversity, about following dreams and passions, and um, the idea that music, world music, can really heal. You know, everyone bringing what they can do best to the table to create something bigger for others. So I didn't imagine five years ago that that messaging in the film would be so important now. But yeah, we're, we're looking to release that film. I think we're going to release it in London um, in February. I think we're going to be done by February. And um, hope to make a big party <laughs> with a big message to don't let go of your dreams and dream big. You know, that's a really important message right now. Yeah, awesome. Um, you'll actually, you should send me the link for the... Uh for the oceanography movie, I'll try to include it in the uh, in the description, and um, if people can uh, download it, um, and then yeah, we'll definitely have to follow up in February once you release the other film. Um, just to kind of circle back, um, your dad uh, is he still with us, or has he passed away, or? It's amazing that you ask that. The week that I was up in the mountains of Guatemala, so this was two weeks ago now, because I really just got back. Um, uh, and I was completely, I mean, it was no cell reception for me. I No internet or anything. Um, just before I left the mountains, I got a phone call um, through a circuit of people there that my father was in the hospital and he almost died. Oh. So I, I, I it was... Um, yeah, so I, I just saw my parents yesterday. My dad is out Good. of the hospital, but um, he came really close to death. Um, he's doing better now. Um, our relationship is amazing. Um, my mom, too. I think my dad really understands the work that I'm doing now, and really everything that I'm doing now is in my dad's name of really thinking big, bigger than yourself when you make decisions about, you know, what's right. Well, that's the validation and, um, that, um, you know, he would hope for in the actions that he took, right? I mean, just to set an example like that for his kids. And really, it goes beyond him, too. I've actually gotten emails and messages from other air traffic controllers in 1981. Wow. Um, one guy from Indiana, I don't know how he found me. I've word is spread a little bit through, the, through that circuit. And um, he emailed me. He just said... Your work is so important to me. Thank you so much. It validates the trauma that I went through as well. He's 72 years old. He lives in Indiana. He's making $12, $10 an hour, $10, $12 an hour. He says he's going to have to work until he dies because he lost everything during that strike, and that was you know, 35, 
30 years ago, 1981, and he just really wanted to thank me for that. And, you know, it's something that I just want to say to all of those, mostly guys, but some women too, um, and, you know, they were honest, working guys who believed, really, that they were taking a political stand for honesty for the American people, and they got thrown under the bus, you know, big time. And, um, you know, I think my work is also in honor of them, just to say, hey, you know, thank you. Thank you for what you did. It didn't, you know, maybe it didn't help you at the moment, but I think it's going to help future generations look at what that kind of courage takes, you know, because that respect, that's gold in my book, pure gold. Yeah, I mean, it reminds me of, um, you know, JFK wrote a book called Profiles in Courage. It's probably my, uh, my favorite book. And, um, you know, the reality is that, you know, we look at what's going on around us and, you know, it's easy to be dragged down by kind of the day-to-day, but, you know, at, at the end of it, you have to kind of keep looking ahead to that shining city on a hill and, uh, you know, just keep pushing forward regardless, um, because there's a lot of things that'll try to pull you down, but, you know... You got to be your yeah. own, your own supporter. There's, there's, there's a really good book out right now, and it's going to be funny for you to hear what I'm going to say. But um, I actually met Michael Reagan at the Reagan Museum. I, I wanted to go there a couple of years ago just to, I really needed to face my own demons, I suppose, and to understand, you know, bigger picture. I just, I really needed to understand. So anyway, Michael Reagan was finding his book, The Lessons My Father Taught Me. And I'm going to say, you know, you always got to take the good and learn from it. And he wrote a book called, um, again, Lessons My Father Taught Me. And in that book, there are actually really, there's a really good list of advice. That I think was probably the soul and spirit of Reagan. Because, you know, I think he spoke to a lot of people. His policies I don't agree with, you know. Uh, you know, and that's okay. Because you can learn from that. But many of the things and the principles he stood for, I think, can actually speak to people today. And one of those was always take a stance for honesty, and if you make a mistake, own up to it. That makes you a leader. Mm. And um, I, I, actually, I have a copy of the book, a sign from Michael Reagan. I didn't get kicked out of the museum. <laughs> I, <laughs> I had a good friend, uh, Michael Reagan, and I said, Michael, my dad also taught me a few lessons, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I didn't slide so well in that public event. Uh. <laughs> If somebody wants to reach out to you, uh, Barbara, how can they uh, reach out to you? many, you know, many lessons that we can abide to now. Um, mm-hmm. 
And then, of course, the film um, The Man Behind the White Guitar will be released soon. And all of those are um, on my website. I'm also doing a little television work, um, environmental work, and immigration work, too. Um, and it's always looking, always looking for support <laughs> right now, living on a sofa and going to a food bank. Doing it really right now with our, all these volunteer opportunities. I think preparing myself for public service. I, I, I would like to run for a political office. I'm just not quite sure where and when, but um, I do look forward to doing that. Well, you definitely got your hands full, and uh, I mean, you're doing God's work, so I, uh, I appreciate your honesty and, uh, you know, your perspective and, you know, just being open and sharing kind of your experiences, so um, thanks again for uh, taking the time, and uh, we'll, we'll stay in touch and definitely do more, uh, more chats again in the future. I so appreciate the opportunity to share. Thanks so much awesome. for all your work that you're doing, too. Thank you. I'll talk to you in a little bit. Thank you so much. Thanks, Barb.